Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices that we take for granted are out of date, illogical, or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room, and I'm here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a couple of F-bombs thrown in for good measure. Pilates Elephants is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher who really fucking knows your stuff. Okay, I am here with Nathan Ross-Reese. Welcome, Nathan. How you going, Raph? Awesome to be with you. <laughs> you too, mate. Good to see um, you. Yeah, and we we are here to talk about the results or your observations of your experiences of your epic odyssey around uh, the, the Pilates tour of Australia, where you have visited 88 plus Pilates studios mm-hmm. and uh, done classes at all of them and given workshops at a lot of them or possibly all of them and interacted with the trainers, the, the owners, the, the clients, et cetera. So you've, you've really done a mystery shopper, although I'm sure they knew you were there, but you've really done an audit really of, of the Pilates studios in Australia, um, right around the continent. And uh, so, yeah, we're going to talk about what you've learned, what you've observed and what, what we as Pilates instructors can learn from that. But um, before we get there, uh, please introduce yourself. Who are you? Yeah, thanks, Raf. I'm Nathan Ross Rees. Um, now I work for myself, which is exciting. Um, so I run workshops on how to use the reformer effectively. Um, also, mentor clients. My clients are now instructors. So I have a reformer academy, which I teach people how to like target muscle groups and how to layer things, like essentially scale exercise to ability level. Um, so like. The idea of graded exercise, I think, is very appropriate because it's basically what you're doing because it goes all the way from the people that need to recover from injuries, I think, and then all the way up to like advanced dynamic style. So we're kind of sitting somewhere in the middle, maybe towards the higher end. But yeah, tailing it to ability level, what you need to do to do that. So I kind of went from being a full-time instructor, teaching like 40 hours a week. Now I teach um, maybe one or two classes a week. Um, and I've switched to being online mainly, but I'm traveling around Australia in the process. So I've been on the road for about three months and, you know, it's been wild. You know, there's been hotels, hostels, sleeping in the car. It feels like I'm on tour, like a band or something, you know, like, (laughs) you know, and it's, everything is up to me. So if I don't organize something, then nothing gets done, you know, and it's like adjusting to a different life, but it's been great. Awesome. Um, yeah, and really your new um, business uh, has grown, uh, I think, out of that this – because you've been – this is you're, you're on a three-month tour, but you've actually been touring around Australia for a couple of years now, um, visiting Pilates Studio. So this is not a brand new thing. Um, so when you were teaching 40 hours a week, you would take a couple of weeks off and, you know, pop up to Sydney or pop up to Melbourne or Brisbane or, you know, wherever – and do do a bunch of classes, visit as many studios as you possibly could in that time. And I I know you've done like two, three, four classes a day for a week, sort of thing. You know, in some yeah. locations. So, yeah. um, and then out of that 
trip, you started to notice patterns and started to notice like, oh, a lot of people don't seem to get, you know, certain principles or certain, you know, things that make teaching really effective and easy. And so you mm-hmm. started, you know, offering tips and tricks for people and training people in your workplace. And then it just kind of snowballed from there and it's mm-hmm. become a business, right? Does that, does that kind of accurately describe it? Oh, so true. So true. Uh, that thing you said about mystery shopping, that was definitely me at the start because it was just like me just um, calling or emailing the owner and saying, hey, can I come and visit? I'm a trainer. Um, I'd love to jump into some classes and and everyone would be super happy. Be like, oh, yeah, for sure, come along, you know, and completely unknown off the radar, um, just some random guy from Tassie that no one ever seen before. Um, and I think actually being from Tassie in that sense kind of helped me because I wasn't really in anyone's territory. I was so uh-huh. far away. I was so isolated that I wasn't yeah. really competing against anyone. Like right. helping me didn't like have a negative impact on anyone. Um, so I could kind of somehow walk into any space and everyone seemed fine. And and um, the thing that was awesome was I'd do the class, but then after the class, I'd actually ask the trainer why they did that, what in particular was the reason, why did we do that combination, why did we layer it, is there a reason for it? And so it wasn't just doing it, but actually understanding why. Mm-hmm. And I found it fascinating, all the different styles and methodologies people had. and um, there's a definitely a huge gap in knowledge out there. Um, there's a, a lot of awesome instructors that actually end up not teaching as much or at all, and I feel like they kind of take all their knowledge with them, honestly. So they they kind of mentor a lot of people in their journey, and then when they go, there's like a bit of a vacuum, especially in their immediate space where they're no longer kind of helping people come along. So what I was thinking was, how cool would it be to go and visit every one of these people and learn from them, but then kind of keep a record of everything that they taught me in one spot. Mm. Um, And the video content really was a form of that because the movement inspiration, you need to record it because it's just so easy to forget because there's so many moves. So Mm. Mm. um, putting that out there was probably what enabled me to grow in any way. And then the the power of social media has kind of put me on a different um, trajectory now where I just, I've got open doors before I even know where they are. People yep. message me and say, hey, do you want to come to the studio? Do you want to teach here? I'd like to do your course. It's like, wow. Um, it's on, and it's worldwide now, which is crazy. So yeah. the idea is to try and be like John Gary times 10,000 and <laughs> um, just keep growing with it. You know, like I just put all the time and energy into it and keep getting better and but the main thing is that everyone really wants to get better. Everyone wants to improve. That's the, the common theme. So um, having specific education on what makes a class better, I think people are kind of curious, like, what is it? What yeah. What is that? And that's what I've been watching uh, mm. keenly over the last couple of years. So this really started out as a personal development exercise for you you wanted to become a better instructor the best possible instructor you could be so you went and wanted to go and learn from everyone else like okay what is it? like everybody must have something to teach you so you oh, know that's so true so you just went and started you know doing people's classes and you know um, absorbing knowledge and experience and tips and tricks and then at some point you'd done i don't know 10 20 30 40 50 60 100 classes whatever it was you started to see the patterns right mm. you started yeah. to you started to notice like oh yeah I, I kind of see, I was starting to notice what works, what doesn't work, you know, what happens if we miss out certain things or, you know, don't explain certain things clearly or whatever it might be. 
and starting to notice the patterns in what makes a good class. So, um, so, right. So, firstly, uh, in terms of let, so, let's start digging into because uh, what I want to talk about today. So, sorry, just let's back up a sec. I want to actually have a conversation with you about your business, but I want to do that in a whole separate episode because, like, we we're just talking off air before we started today, and actually, I think it's like it's too much to include in just one episode. So I want to have a whole separate conversation about how you're starting your business and what, you know, how that works for you as a business and and how it's growing and the challenges and the you know, things that are making it work and whatever. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm super excited at the moment about the proliferation of new innovative ways that people are creating to make a good living as a Pilates instructor that don't involve working for a wage in someone else's studio. Now, nothing wrong with working for a wage in someone else's studio, but it's like, well, everyone knows how to do that but and that's been an opportunity that's been around for decades but now there's like heaps of really cool new ways that people are creating and making up new you know business models and so and i think you've got a fairly interesting and unique business model uh that you've basically created out of thin air for yourself um so i'd really like to discuss that and un- unpack it so i think that's a whole episode so let's put that to the side for now uh, and what I really want to dig into today is what you learned in those 88 studio visits mm-hmm. uh, and counting. It's probably more than 88 now. And, and, and you know, what, what we as instructors, you know, myself and those listening can learn from, you know, so, so I can learn, so I don't have to go and do 88 studio visits you know, like what could, can you share with us the good bits, you know, <laughs> what are the main key takeaways? So, um, so, but before we, before we get into that, um, you know, the backdrop here is we're in Australia and for years I thought, uh, you know, when I was learning Pilates, I thought, you know, all, all Pilates comes from America because Joseph Pilates lived in America when he created Contrology and all of the big brands that I was aware of at the time were in North America. So Stop Pilates in Canada, you know, Balanced Body, Bassey, Peak, you know, all of these are the North American brands. And so I thought, oh, in Australia here, we're stuck out at the arse end of the earth. You know, we're 10 years behind everything. We're like the frontier town with just a, you know. Tumbleweed going you t- Yeah, right. <laughs> and we get the fashions, you know, 10 years after they hit the big city, you know. Um, but when I went to the, U- to the US and Canada, I actually went to, Toronto to train at Stop Pilates headquarters, I was extremely underwhelmed. I was like, holy shit, like there's a lot of Pilates studios in Australia that are way better than this, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And and then I went around to a bunch of studios and I'm like, oh no, they're all like this. You know, like we're, they, no, they didn't have group reformer there. This was like 2010, nine, eight, something like that. They didn't have group reformer. Like their idea of group reformer was like four reformers in a studio. Now that's not a criticism, It's a but it was very surprising to me because I th- like group reform was totally normal in Australia that that's at that time as it is yeah. now. It's like yeah. yeah. So if you say to the ran- a random person on the street, "Have you done Pilates?" Probably the picture that comes into their mind when you ask them that question is group reformer, like twelve or fourteen reformers in a room with you know basically kind of a dynamic, athletic sort of a style class. Mm-hmm. Um, but in North America, and you know, there's now there's Club Pilates in North America, which does do something similar. They do twelve reformers, but it's as I understand it, it's not quite the same because they do. They include chair in the workout and spring walls and things like that. And again, not a criticism, just an observation that it's different. Uh, and you know, most of 
the other studios, I think, uh, you know, five reformers or fewer. Um, and this has been also uh, my experience talking to people in the UK and Western Europe. I've talked to people in Germany, France, Italy, uh, Belgium, a couple of people in Brazil, um, you know, like, and heaps of people in the US. And it's like, yeah, by and large, the, what we think of as reformer, in, as Pilates in Australia, you know, 12 to 14 group, you know, reformers in a room, that's not what they call it. Yeah, that's not what they what they think of as Pilates in in these other places. So, can you describe, you know, what you do? Like, you know, how do you describe the style of Pilates that you teach? Yep. So it's definitely an experience. So you're kind of setting a mood in the room, engaging with people personally. There's like a lot of. Um, connection there's a lot of people that are kind of talking to each other or have the experience of kind of like relating to each other so the opposite of a gym setting in which people are kind of sitting and just focusing on one point and not interacting so you want to have like a lively mood um i you like mean talking to each other during the class not during the class because um, i've done uh, your class and i wasn't in the mood for talking i was just like <laughs> head down bum up trying to drip as yeah. little sweat on the reformer as possible and you know trying to take a rest uh, every time you turned your back on me no, no, yeah, I see them. I see those rests. Um, <laughs> but the, I'd, if people could talk during my class casually, I'd say they're not working hard enough, so I just don't let that happen either. Um, okay. <laughs> um, but there's got to be, for me, what I'm trying to achieve is a dynamic class that's going to get a calorie burn around 300, 250 to 300 for a beginner class, um, and then it scales up as you go higher. Um, full body um, I want it to be appropriate to the ability level in the room. So depending on the class, I'm going to teach things with less complexity if it's like more new people for sure because I want them to get the most out of their time. And it's going to be something that's going to try and push their comfort zone. So I'm going to hold people in positions for long enough to guarantee they're going to get a result out of that exercise, every exercise. I think that's the key. It's just delivering every time and I always kind of use the analogy like when you buy something online it's like there's an expected kind of delivery date and then it comes and it builds trust so if every single exercise you teach you tell the clients this is what we're doing this is where you're going to feel it and then at the end of the exercise that's exactly what they get it's just trust multiplied again and again and again and eventually there's so much trust that there's zero um resistance to anything you do or say in the room so that the class flows so quick because people are actively listening to you or they might even do things they've never heard of before but they trust that you know exactly what you're doing so they might the toes might go straight onto the bar or they might take that progression they're not guessing they're like Mm -hmm. it's like you have some kind of crazy insight into what they're experiencing right now so they just want to they know that you know and that changes and it changes how they feel. It's like I feel like if you got on a plane and then you looked at the pilot and you saw the pilot was like really nervous, you'd be like, oh, shit, are we going to be okay? You know? But if you see the pilot just relaxed, you know, um, it makes you feel good. So yeah. if you're instructing a class and you know exactly what everyone's feeling and you can tell them what they're going to feel before they feel it and you tell them why we're doing it, you give them all the reasons why, like you bring meaning to their suffering, it gives them a lot of like – encouragement to that they're doing the right thing like um and the meaning to the suffering is huge like mm. because if i said to you raf hey 
um, can you you know hold a plank right now for five minutes? You'd probably be like, oh, you know, I don't really want to. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of effort. <laughs> I can think so of I said, hey, to do. <laughs> well, I said, Raf, you know, if I knew what motivated you, but let's just throw a number. I say, hey, Raf, I'll give you like $10 million cash right now if you can hold this plank for five minutes. You yeah, would. I'd be much you more would. motivated, yeah. Yeah. I can, gar- I can guarantee th- I'd hold it. Yeah. But the thing is that the suffering didn't change. No. You know, but the reason to do it did, but that yeah. just made it different somehow. So like yeah. enabling the clients to understand why we're doing this movement will help them do it better and do it longer. So I've, I feel like I set the class up so we do less exercises. And if you do less exercises, then you've got more time to explain why we're doing them. And mm-hmm. then in that process, they actually improve quicker because they understand what they're doing and they learn faster. So the clients actually progress quicker when you do less, which is the opposite of what you would think, but it's really, really true because I actually get to master the, what they're doing as opposed to just rushing through it. Yeah. Um, and they don't spend time wasted in transitions. That's the number. If I was going to put it on a list of number one things that will disturb a class, and when I say class, I mean the outcome of the class, what the result is. If you have a lot of exercises, then you have a lot of cost in transition time. Like mm. Changing your body, changing the springs, changing the props, you know, that takes away time of the workout. So yeah. the more changes, the less workout. And the context here is that most of these workouts are like 45, 50 minutes, 60 minutes tops, right? Mm. Yeah. And so when you say results, what do you mean by results? Like the result of the class, the result of the exercise. What do you mean by that? Um, mechanical tension, actually improving the strength or the conditioning of the client. So you'd see like a, a physical adaption, like they would actually be better at the movement mm-hmm. slash do anything similar to that movement better. Like right, so they can do more reps or they can hold it for longer or they can add a spring or take off a spring or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, and that's the way I like to look at the beginner class experience because if you look at the, what a personal trainer does, a personal trainer – really only adjust the load or the volume to get right. a result. So you start and out doing, you know, leg press on day one of your personal training, you know, 12 months later you're still doing leg press but you just got more weight on there. Mm. Um, and what helps the beginners the most is actually doing something a lot so they become very familiar. Yep. So all you really do with the beginners is just adjust the load or the reps even in the class. and that will help them improve their attributes. And the thing is when their attributes are better, they'll be able to do anything else better too. So they're Mm -hmm. actually kind of ready now to take on things that are more complex because the more complex things, they they tend to have less stability. Um, And if you have less stability, you need to have better conditioning because like you're going to fatigue quicker if you're less stable. So um, it's also higher risk if you're less stable. Like, like if one thing I like to talk about in my program is with the clients um, to do with how every exercise isn't exactly the same, even though it's the same movement pattern or the muscle groups. Like if you look at a lunge facing the front on the ground with your inside foot in the shoulder pad, you're the most stable you could ever be because the surface of the ground is quite hard. The foot bar's in front of you, so there's no really place you could fall. If you did, you could catch yourself. If you do the same movement, let's say this is a light spring for all of these, so you bend the front knee, tip the torso forward. So the challenge is gravity. So you kind of 
moving the, the force or the load, the load of your body weight onto the glutes on the standing leg as you lean forward. If you do that on a box, box is slightly softer, so it's a little bit harder to stabilize. You're higher off the ground, so if you were to fall, the outcome would be worse. And it doesn't really feel like a big deal to you and me because our attributes are fine. But if someone doesn't have great balance, yeah. it does feel like a big deal and that makes them hesitant. So when they yeah. move in a hesitant way, they don't move well and they fatigue pretty quick. Um, and then if you keep scaling up the complexity, like if we went and did the same lunge now where you're standing on the platform and you have your back foot on the carriage and you do the same movement, bend the front knee, lean forward, now the foot bar is going to have to be lower for you to stand there. So there's less things that could support you. So if you fall from there, the outcome is going to be worse. And a lot of the platforms out there, they're either small and awkward or they're large and soft. So both of those options aren't awesome. But then if you did it facing the back, it's even harder again. So imagine if you're standing on the platform facing the pulleys. And then you yeah, step- we call that like a Russian split or a back split. Oh, yeah. It's like a, a forward lunge, but you're facing the back. So yeah. you, you step the foot onto the carriage and the you lean your body weight over the carriage as the carriage moves out and then you push the stand up and the carriage comes back. So now you have to stabilize your body on a moving surface. Nothing's going to stop you if you fall. I mean, you could have the box short ways, which would give you some emotional support and physical support, but like the outcome, it's just harder to do that. But it's the same muscle group, the same movement pattern, but it's not the same ease of to do it. Like to do the lunge on the floor is way easier and safer than doing it on the machine. So actually giving the clients the best version of an exercise to their ability level helps them improve quicker because they can do more reps and do them better when it's easier. Mm. And, there's, um, there's there's some interesting uh, – yeah, so I'm, I'm with you on that. And the, the science behind that is uh, – I find it interesting anyway – is that as you um, – you know, in any movement, so say in the lunge on the floor – when you're, you're coming up, you're standing up out of lunge, okay, you're working your glutes of the standing leg, the quads of the standing leg, um, and they're the prime movers in the in the exercise. But then you're also working your adductors and your abductors in the standing leg, and they're, they're called the synergists, the muscles that, you know, help hold your torso upright and stop you tipping over to the, to the side one way or the other, stop you hip hiking out or whatever. Uh, and then you have the opposing muscles. So you have the hip flexors uh, and maybe the hamstrings, with other hamstrings are a little bit different in the squat because they or a lunge because they basically work isometrically but let's just say the hip flexors which are the the opposite of the glutes right they're hip flexors glutes hip extensors in a lunge as you're standing up out of lunge well the the hip flexors are lengthening right so they're not contracting to to power the movement but they are on because you have to decelerate at the top of the movement right you don't want to actually jump off the ground so and you want you don't want your torso to keep flipping over backwards and do a a backflip. So you have to use your hip flexors to decelerate the movement. So all through that movement, you know, all of the muscles in your legs are working, but obviously your glutes and quads are working much more because they're providing the main power for the movement. And you but your abducts and your adducts and your hip flexors are all working to kind of help stabilize, directionalize, decelerate, etc. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, in a in a very stable position, like when your foot's on the floor in a lunge, it's like, you know, I am just making up the percentage here, but you know, it's I think it's for illustrative purposes. You know, let's say it's like 90% glutes and quads and 10% everything else put together, right? Mm. But then when you get onto a, a, a really unstable situation, so when you say you take that same movement, you put that, that front foot, you put it on the carriage, 
Okay. And now you're pushing the carriage out on a light spring and, and doing the same exact movement pattern. But the carriage is you know, moving front to back. So you've got a lot more instability in the forward to back direction, but it's also a kind of a soft surface. So that it's unstable in the left to right, you know, in the mm. side to side direction as well. Yep. Uh, and because of that, you have to con- co-contract all of those adductors and abductors and hip flexors and things a lot more to stabilize, right? So you're working a lot harder in those um, assisting muscles. And because you're working a lot harder in those assisting muscles, essentially they provide like deceleration, right? They're, they're, they're resisting the move, the, the action of the glutes and the, and the quads, right? Mm-hmm. So essentially when you increase the instability of a movement, you reduce the amount of power that comes from the main muscle. So when you're doing that, say that same lunge with the foot on the, like we, the second one where we said where the foot's on the carriage, okay, the front foot's on the carriage, um, instead of like 90% glutes and quads and 10% everything else, it might be like 60% glutes and quads, 40% everything else, yep. right? So you a lot more adductors, a lot more abductors, a lot more hip flexors, less glutes and quads. Because if you use full power in that situation, you can't control it, yep. right? So your brain and, and your motor cortex inhibits those prime mover muscles and prevents them from, you know, maximally re- being maximally recruited because you, it's not stable enough for you to, to apply that power. It's like you've got this massive big engine in a car, but no brakes or steering, right? So yeah. you, when you're on an icy road, you have to drive slow, right? Yeah. And so doing a lunge on the, with your foot on the carriage is the kind of body equivalent of driving on an icy road. It's like you can't use all your power. Mm. And so because you can't use all your power, can't develop more power because that's in the body. That's how we develop more power and strength is by using power and strength. So actually it's well known, well established in exercise science that if you want to increase maximum strength and power, you've got to do it in a very stable environment because you can get much greater recruitment. Now that's not to say you shouldn't ever work in an unstable situation because it's great to practice, you know, stabilizing and all that's useful, right? It's probably a useful skill, particularly for people who need to improve balance and whatever. But just if your goal is to improve strength of, say, your glutes and quads, mm. right? Yeah, do it in a very stable environment because then you can maximize the load because you're not, there's no kind of tax, you know, stability tax, shall we say. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, it sounds like a really awesome articulated version of the simple version that I said. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, all right, so basically, you know, your your North Star in this, you know, your ideal of, you know, a good class mm-hmm. is one where you get enough tension, enough mechanical tension on those muscle groups, you know, and basically you said a whole body class, so I'm going to say like on all the muscles, <laughs> right, at some yep. point during the class, mm-hmm. where there is a stimulus for those muscles to become stronger. Yep. Right. So basically after I do, you know, 10 classes, I'll feel the difference. 20 classes, I'll see the difference. 30 classes, I'll have a whole new body. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, that was that was just a butcher uh, Joseph Pilates quote. No, but, yeah. It's yeah. um it's funny. It's funny. I don't even know if I want to say it, but there's a lady in Mexico last week that said I was a Joseph of 2022, and I was just like, "That's the funniest thing." <laughs> maybe that, um, that, maybe that Instagram handle is still available. Joseph 2022. <laughs> um, no, I will leave that. All right. So, all right. So, so in in your in your lights, um, 
you know, getting stronger, you know, and I use that term kind of generically because I'm including under that umbrella improving endurance or, you know, whatever, but basically yeah. improving your physical capacity, increasing your physical capacity is, that's what you mean by results, right? Yeah. hundred percent. Like, I think that's a great outcome from investment of time and energy, you know? Right. All right. And so, so, you know, so you go around Australia, you know, visiting all these studios, you know, you said the, you know, you're starting to notice the patterns. Well, what were the patterns? You know, what were the thing, what were the top sort of five or whatever number of things that you noticed that were the common elements of a really effective class? And what were the what were the flip side of those? What were the things that were common elements of a not really awesome class? Let's yep. st- let's start with the awesome ones first. Awesome is starts the second you walk in the door. It's the engagement from the instructor on a personal level to actually acknowledge you, to be welcoming, to be fun, um, and that just sets the tone for the entire experience. Because if you if you go into a space that you're unfamiliar with and you're not really greeted with a warm welcome, it just doesn't really go very far from there. Like the, the workout could be pretty good, but if you not don't feel welcome, you kind of feel isolated, you know, and the way the, the studios are set out, everyone has their own space. So if you're not encouraged to communicate, then you just don't. Mm. You really and don't. I, I noticed actually when I did your class that you introduced me to a bunch of other people. You're like, oh, Raph, this is so-and-so, you know, you know, she does Pilates here on Wednesdays or whatever. And, and yeah, so you basically just facilitated because, you know, if you're milling around and there's like 10 people waiting to do class, you can't obviously talk to all of them at the same time. So I noticed that you made an effort to facilitate commit connection between the clients as well. It's just a, it's a, it makes everyone's time more enjoyable. And I think you can, if you can build the relationships before and after the class, the class is more fun, you know, because yeah. it becomes eventually with enough time, it's just like you're training all your friends, you know, and there's nothing more fun than that. Yeah. Um, so you're engaging with them in the same way you would engage with your friends. Like you, you can just be fun and relaxed and, but it's an intention. Like you're actually trying to do that. You want to do that. That's, that's the difference because some people just do it naturally, which is great. But the studios that I think always are the best experience are the ones that just do that all the time as a habit. You know, that's just what they do. Um, yeah. And that's really a top down thing. You know, that's, that's usually set by, the leadership team in that group um, behaviors like that. You will find people that tend to do it just because that's who they are, but on balance, everything really comes from the top down. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, there are those of us who just naturally do that and I don't include myself in that category, but um, there are people that are just naturally, you know, friendly and are all about building community and connection and then there are other, you know, the rest of us who have to con- make a conscious decision to do that and, you know, do it and build a habit, build, flex the muscle and do reps and, and build a habit. And that comes from management, comes from leadership uh, and becomes a cultural sort of practice that needs to be ingrained and reinforced constantly. It, it's really, it's really... I think it's well, the, whatever happens in the studio is just an amplification of what the trainers actually experience behind the scenes. So if huh. the trainers are acknowledged and re- loved and respected, then they do that for everyone. But if they're not, then they don't do that for everyone too. So it's like, you know, 
why would they if like they don't get any love and support why would they want to do that for everyone else you know it's just like that's i think the 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 kind of the default position that seems to happen so the people that really look after their instructors their instructors are happier and because they're happier they engage more and then it just changes the atmosphere it's really Mm. like top down like that for sure Mm. and i mean i i don't know but i'm just uh projecting but this was my experience as a leader in a bit in a pilates studio that there were two things that can stop you well that stopped me you know and at different times from providing that leadership for people and and uh you know treating my instructors like i wanted my instructors to treat my clients and one was basically i don't know if it's imposter syndrome but it's basically feeling not worthy because when i was managing I had instructors who were working for me who were more experienced than me, right? So I was like, oh, I don't want to tell these people how to do their job, you know. I don't want to patronize them by going, oh, good job the way you taught that lunge there. It's like, yeah, they fucking know how to teach a lunge, dude. Like, then you know, they don't need you to tell them they're doing it right because you're only half as experienced as them. But no, that was wrong, you know. Experienced people need praise and affirmation and encouragement and guidance and feedback, you know, just the same as everybody else. In fact, probably experienced people are more open to it often in my experience, like the good ones are. Uh, So that was, that was my bad. And it took me a while to learn that lesson. It's like, even if it's your first day on the job as a brand new manager and don't know shit about shit, I mean, you know what, what it's like to be friendly to somebody and to be welcoming right mm. so yeah. Yeah, do that you know um and then the second thing that stopped um you know that i think stops people and this was a thing for me for a bit as well is i didn't see it as my job you know i sort of thought it's like oh it's the instructor's job to be friendly to the clients but it's not my job to be friendly to the instructors it's my job to run the business mm. you know it's like well what the fuck do you think running the business is you know like I'm saying We're that to my human, to, to my know? I'm saying that to my younger self now. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, running the business means treating your you know partly you know part of running a business is treating your staff the way you want your staff to treat your customers. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We're all human. We all have emotions. Like if you feel appreciated, you do more. Yeah, you know, and and it doesn't take a lot, but the intention is is really appreciated from everyone so yeah, yeah. And, and also the environment behind the scenes too also the the behavior expectations that are set by the owner or the the team leader so if the if the environment has a lot of like gossip and two-faced stuff happening it's bad it's a bad space mm-hmm. but you can guarantee the experiences are going to be bad for the clients too because mm-hmm. Good people can't thrive in environments like that because they're not being rewarded for the behaviours that make them good. They're so actually being ostracised. It selects for for people who don't have those behaviours. Yeah. All right. So all right. So it, the you know it starts when the client first you know their nose passes through the doorway, and mm. they they receive a genuine, warm, and enthusiastic you know welcome yep. from the instructor, and then probably some chit chat and some you know figurative back slapping and you know an introduction to one or more of the other clients going oh here's mary she also you know has two kids or whatever you know like just introducing people sharing things that have got in common and um oh you know mary's been coming here for a year you know mary would you look after nathan it's his first day today you know nathan stick by mary she she knows what she's doing copy her if you get lost um all right so what's the next thing 
Yeah. So from that point, you want to actually have a class that has minimal transitions or minimal transition time. So you're not wasting time. Um, so that's going to have a, an effect on the total result. Like if you look at the total result as in calorie burn, um, if you're spending more time standing around waiting, then you're not going to get the same results. Um, mm-hmm. So I put that down to the skill level of the instructor to communicate their intentions to the level of the ability of the clients to understand what they mean. Mm-hmm. Um so you can change the way you speak depending on who's in the room. So if you're dealing with people that are intermediate advanced, you can be super minim- minimal. This way, lunge, that, go, you know. And then if it's like brand new, then you do need to say potentially more things because you have to educate them. But there's a skill in saying only the things they need to hear when they need to hear them and not overloading them in the process because that slows it down. So like communication is huge epic and that's a skill set that i think is like the one that gets the most refined over time is like how you talk depending on who's there that's Mm. like that's how you know someone's good because they doesn't matter who's in the room they can just make it work like and i know that you know when i was taught and i know that a lot of our listeners as well share this experience you know we were taught i was taught essentially like a spiel you know, of here's how you teach the footwork or the step up or the whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are the words you say in this order, you know, okay, we're going to, everyone, we're going to do footwork. So lay down, put three springs on, lie down on your back, feet on the bar, t- Pilates V, heels together, toes apart, blah, 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 blah. And then you mm-hmm. say all those words in that order, right? And it doesn't matter if it's the first time you've given that cue to that group or it's the 500th time you've taught that exercise to that same group of people, you know, you basically use the same spiel, you know. <laughs> One, you know, regardless, because it's just like a a tape recording that plays in your head, <laughs> and when you when you press the button in your head that says teach footwork, out out it comes. Um, but what you're saying is, number one, in that word salad, there's probably, you know, a quarter of the words that actually are important, and the client makes meaning of and understands what to do. Mm-hmm. Then three quarters of it's just filler, and you can throw it out on day one. Mm-hmm. And then as the clients become more experienced, they need less and less and less mm-hmm. because they already know how to do the freaking exercise. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's it. They don't need as much. They need more support to push themselves past their comfort zone and right. recognition of their effort. Um, and so they, you can also speak to them in a different way where you don't actually have to have the music as low and you don't have to be just conversational tone. So people tend to understand easier if you're speaking to them in a slower, more conversational tone and the music's lower. So in a beginner class, anytime you're transitioning between an exercise or a, a prop or a, a movement, having the volume down and speaking slower tends to work better. More people seem to understand what you mean. But in like a in a class when there's like everyone understands everything basically, you can have the music almost full volume and you can just yell like one cue and everyone's like doing it, you know. So like yeah. it just changes how you instruct, and having a different way to instruct makes instructing so much more fun. And like I hate hate a strong word, but I hate the idea of a pre-recorded version of yourself. You just press play because it's the adaption of your understanding to the individuals which makes the class work. Yeah. It's not otherwise. It's just 
record me on a screen and play me. I don't even need to yeah. be there. Like yeah. I don't want to be that version of myself. Like I right. want to adapt what I say depending on what they need to hear. And like it's it's like this is the process that becomes most evident in how good an instructor is, is when they actually start an exercise. So you could say everything you want to set it up. But when it starts, there's always someone in the room that didn't understand what you meant. And it's what you say next, which will determine how good you are. Because it's, I believe it's the process on how long it takes everyone to understand what you mean. That's how good you are. Not exactly what process in which you say it or how, how you say it. How long does it take to under, for them to understand? Um, All right. And so if, if you're teaching, you know, if you're teaching us, you know, a class, you're teaching us, you know, whatever exercise, let's say lunges. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you go, okay, so put your foot here, put your foot here, put on this many springs, you know, do this, okay, go. Okay, and we all go, and then at, there I am at the back going like, oh, fuck, which foot was which again? Uh, sorry, how many springs did you say? Um, um, you know, and so I'm obviously a bit confused and not quite getting it. Yep. What What do you do then? So one thing I like to teach people is, um, so you kind of actively as actively observing the room the entire time you're in it um, and you want to have a presence and awareness and every single time you give information to the room you pause and you assess what the outcome of that was so let's say you've got 10 people 10 reformers and you give a movement cue like the lunge like you said after I give that I'll just stop and see how many people out of 10 are actually doing exactly what I wanted them to do and then I'll select What's the common misunderstanding? And then that's my next cue. So uh-huh. it's like selective cueing. So I could potentially have a list of things that I could say. Yeah. But there's no point going through them all if they don't need that. They only yeah. need one, you know, yeah. based on what they yeah. need in that moment. All right. So tell me if I got this right because I think I think I get you. All right. So you're going to say, okay, everyone, we're going to do lunges. So put on one red spring or one blue spring or whatever. All right. So then you wait for everyone to put on one red spring. And you notice I'm putting on three red springs. And you're like, oh, Raph, no, put on one red spring. And then, um, so then you say, all right, everybody now put your left foot on the floor next to the base of the carriage or whatever, next to the, whatever that thing's called, the leg, the foot of the carriage. And everyone puts their foot there, but then maybe three of us put our foot like, you know, 12 inches backwards from there or something. (laughs) And you're like, okay, everyone now see that you've left foot's on the floor there. See where the bottom of the carriage, where the leg of the carriage touches the floor, move your foot forward until it's right next to that foot of the carriage. And then you watch us do it, right? So basically you gave the instruction in the first round and you saw some of us didn't do it. So then you, you, you sort of magnify that instruction or, you know, amplify that instruction or double click on that instruction. It's okay, let's really just focus on getting your foot next to that, you know, support or whatever it is. Yeah. Did I get it? Um, yeah, pretty much. So the only reason that would be possible is if you had the awareness to actually see what happened. Right. But so you've got to give one instruction. So rather than saying, hey, everyone, we're going to do lunges, so put on one red spring, put your foot by the base of the support, put your back foot on the shoulder pad, stand up nice and straight, reach out your back leg, hinge forwards at the hips, micro bend in the front knee, take a breath in on the exhale, reach back and bend your front knee to 90 degrees and keep your back leg straight, push the carriage all the way out and then come back in. So you're giving me like 99 instructions I would never there. say that. And, I would never and say that. <laughs> yeah, so you've given me 99 instructions, but you haven't waited to see if I did the first one yet before you <laughs> – yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I was worried we're on the wrong wavelength there for a second. Um, yeah, so I'd, I'd, I'd say is le- the least amount of things as possible. Like the challenge, I, it was a game I play with myself and it's um, 
how can I say less, basically? Like, if I could say it in 20 words, can I say it in three? You know, can everyone still understand what I mean if I only say half the movement cue? Or what if you just, like, stand in the corner and just, like, raise your eyebrow a little bit? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, like, Jedi level, I think. (laughs) Um. So yeah, it's like you you pretty much you select the cue based on what has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, if let's just say, let's just say that you're in the room, Raf, and we did the lunge, and even you, everyone was doing it perfectly. It wouldn't make any sense for me to keep going through the cues because you're already doing it. Yeah, yeah. So like, if I wasn't aware of what was happening, then it was a, I'm wasting my time and everyone else's yeah. time. What are you cueing um, me for? It's like I'm already you're saying, "Hey, Raf, put your foot on the front thing." I'm like, "Where the fuck do you think my foot is? It's right there already." Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like, that's why it's like a way better use of energy and time because yeah. you can just move on to things that are more important, like actually understanding why we're doing it. You know, yeah. as opposed to just the cue. All right. So all right. So first, the first thing is. You know, friendly greeting, connect people, keep it upbeat, keep it positive, you know, let people know that you're glad they're there genuinely. Hmm. Uh, the second one is uh, when you queue, make sure people come along for the ride essentially by giving one queue, watch to see if they execute it, and then give the next queue, which might be the same queue repeated in a different way, or it might hmm. be, you know, the next step in the process. And then as you, as you teach, you know, more experienced clients, you give fewer cues. You might just say, hey, everyone, we're going to do lunges, one ridge spring, go. Yep. Right. And then there might be one or two stragglers that you need to help a little bit. But whereas in a beginner class, you might walk us, you know, step by step by step through each part of the setup, you know. Yep. Um, and so the, the purpose there is to minimize the time spent not exercising. Yes. So That's that it. in my 50-minute class, I spend 48 minutes working out, not, you know, 40 minutes working out and 10 minutes struggling with which spring I've got or getting a box from the corner of the room or whatever it might be. It It's surprising how much it adds up and the smallest things will have an impact on the class, how it flows. And when I say flow, I mean how easily people get to the next position. Yeah. Like even the smallest thing, like if you're using dumbbells in the warm-up, the difference between saying put the dumbbells down or if you put the dumbbells on the floor on the reception side. So then when we, you know when you switch to the other side, there's a dumbbell waiting for you to go. Yeah. Like if you if you don't if you're not specific about exactly where you want something to go, then it will go everywhere. You will right. go in the well, on the left yeah. side, in front, on the so right. So take the dumbbell in your left hand and put it on the headrest. And now let's switch hands and go again. Okay, now flip around to the other side. Now pick that dumbbell off the left headrest, put it in your right hand, off you go. Right, so it's like you're basically putting it there for where you'll need it. You know where you're going to need it next, and so you yeah. get them to put it down. And, and that could apply to the foam roller or the fit magic circle or the whatever, right, the foot bar position, the spring setting, the, the strap, whatever it might be. Hmm. All right, yep. so you, we're really you know creating a flow which, by which we mean uh, – minimizing the time spent transitioning between one exercise to another, minimizing the equipment setting changes, minimizing body position changes, minimizing the setup time essentially. Yep. Yep. And so that's partly down to programming thing like, okay, if I'm starting on one red spring or one half spring or whatever, it's like, well, how many exercises in a row can I do on that single spring setting without changing it? Right. Cause then that saves time. And if I'm starting, you know, 
say in a lunge position with one foot on the floor, one foot on the shoulder pad, it's like, well, what's the next natural position from there that involves the smallest amount of movement? It might be like, okay, put your knees on the carriage, hands on the bar, and we're doing a plank or whatever, right? So it's like, what's the what's the natural sort of transition from there that involves the, the fewest steps, you know, adjustments to the equipment, body position changes? Am, am I on the right track? Yeah, so it depends – really what you want to achieve with the class like you could people out there want to do full body workouts some people have specific focus for the class some people have like maybe it's like a cardio class you know like it's whatever the class needs to achieve um done in a um, like a, a simple way um I've, i know what um, happens i'm if, sorry if, i'm just i'm just going to jump in there uh i think what i uh, just really just reminded me um a couple of our grads uh uh, in Sydney own Kefi Studios, K-E-F-I. Yeah. yeah. And yep. I know they do, um, so that's Fanny and Nike. Uh, yep. Shout out to, to those guys. They're awesome. Uh, I know they, they have a really innovative way of doing their programming. So they basically do strength-based, a full-body strength-based workout. I can't remember which days, but let's say it's like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Mm-hmm. Every class from dawn till dusk is a full-body strength session, right? And so – and then every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, every class from dawn to dusk is a cardio-based session, right? It's all on the reformer, but you're just doing like more faster moves and lighter weights and getting your heart rate up and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so basically, you know that you need to do your two to three strength training sessions a week. So you've got to come Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, or at least two of those days. And you know that you need, you know, X number of cardio sessions per week. So you've got to come Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, whatever. And you know that if you come Monday, Tuesday, you're not going to be burning the same muscles, you know, two days in a row because Monday's strength day and Tuesday is cardio day, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I, I just uh, I just learned about that recently. I think it's a freaking brilliant way of doing a group class programming, which means that everybody can come, you know, like build their, their program in a more uh, intentional way and get the full benefits of uh, both the strength and the cardio aspect. So anyway, sorry for interrupting. Uh, <laughs> shout out to Kefi Studios, freaking awesome in Sydney. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, you're building your program around whether it's a full body workout or a you know, particular focus, upper body, lower body, abs, glutes, you know, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're trying to minimize those transitions whilst also thinking, okay, have we worked the legs? Have we worked the arms? Have we worked the abs? Have we worked the bat? All of those things, right? Yeah. Yeah, the objective is to to make sure that every time you get into an exercise that there's an outcome from it for sure. Um, and then it's just how you put them together, which would minimize the transition time between them, right. you know. Um, and it's and what tends to happen is if, if you kind of free-flow your classes um, like I like to do, you end up teaching the third class way better than the first because yeah. you've had a couple of goes at it yeah. and you find a yeah. way that seems to be more minimal in transitions and more yeah. effective. So yeah. it just naturally over time, everyone seems to optimize whatever they do. People do it better after a couple of goes. So just being more like that all the time is tends to be the way to go. Yeah, I give I give the same lecture twice in a row every Monday because um, I give it at my 5.30 a.m. for our UK and Western Europe-based students because that's kind of like 8.30 p.m. for them. Then I give the same lecture again at 9am for our Australian and North American students. And I'm sorry, UK team, but like the second lecture is generally better just because like I've had the yeah. practice, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. 
Yeah, it really is. Um, uh, all right. And so, all right. So there's greeting and you know, community building, you know, in the, when they're waiting, then there's the transitions and the instruct, you know, minimizing transitions, uh, inst- instructing, you know, minimizing the instructions, but not, you know, so as few as in fewer, as few instructions as possible, but not fewer so that people know what to do as quickly as possible. Give them one instruction, watch them do it. If necessary, give them a different instruction to do the same thing. Um, and then step by step by step. What's, you know, is, is that it? Like if I do that, am I the Australia's best instructor or are there other things? No, no way. Um, so like the queuing thing, what it, what it does is if you use less cues, then you've got more time to talk about other things. So what do I talk if, about? You, if you like, you talk about, um, what the exercise is while we're doing it, where they're going to feel it, um, what benefits they might get from it if, when they're better at it, like more like of the stuff that will help them like suffer with meaning. Like that's uh-huh. the stuff you can start to talk about. If all you do is cue, then you actually kill the class vibe because it becomes a lecture and you just talk at people, at them, at them, do this, do this. And they actually start to switch off and go into listening mode where there's no engagement. But the less amount of cueing you do, the more actual time you can just tell stories or open-ended questions and, and build class engagement. So the classes are way more fun and easy to teach when people are more responsive. So yeah. less cueing means more fun, like a lot, way more fun. Um, but the next thing that makes people um, better is their understanding of how spring tension is relative to body mass. So if you have someone who weighs 50 kilos or someone who weighs 100 kilos, they're not going to have the same experience on the same spring. Right. Um, because so, so if I'm doing long stretch and I, I actually weigh 100 kilos and I'm doing it on, you know, say one full spring and then, I don't know, my daughter's next to me, she's 45 kilos, doing the same exercise on the same spring. She's going to struggle to push the carriage out. It's going to be a shoulder exercise for her. Or I'm going to be like, oh my fucking God, my abs are exploding you know like i can only go out a quarter of the way before my abs are like shaking and <laughs> yeah. you know i feel it in my back so and yeah. that's because i've got much more body mass which yep. means i get proportionately less support from that yep. same spring that is everything that is everything because um the body mass that you have will determine what the focus is but that's a good example what you just had then but also like in a leg exercise like a standing split like if there's enough tension, it's a challenge for the glutes. If it's not enough, then it'll be a challenge for the inner thighs to bring the carriage back. But the determining factor is how much you weigh, really. Yeah. Um, the good thing is the standardized springs tend to cater for the majority of people, but the outliers will have a different experience. And and it also I, depends. It also depends on on your dimensions, right? So if I'm doing long stretch, if I'm like six foot three, yeah, it's like well, that's going to be harder for me, even if I'm the same body weight. As than someone who's like five foot three, just because I've got a longer lever and the load is uh, the is the actual spring resistance multiplied by the length of the lever. So it's like if if you are you know six mm. inches taller, it's like you know one point whatever times harder. Yeah, yeah. If you ever wondered why guys tend to struggle with abdominals and legs and light springs, I think it's just because they weigh more, so they don't get as much support straight up. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's one of the general reasons. And also all their partners want them to suffer in there, so they tell the instructor to make it harder for them intentionally. <laughs> Everyone knows that's true. Um, 
So that's probably why guys don't do reformer that much because every time they go, they just get punished. Um, <laughs> can't walk for days. Yeah. Um, but that in that uh, that understanding has a huge impact because if you're instructing a group class of ten plus people, it's unrealistic to expect everyone's going to have the same body mass. So that means that not everyone's going to have the same experience straight away. And if you've got like a big range there, like you do have someone who's 45, you do have someone that's 110, then you have to understand what are they feeling right now? You know, does this mass change the, the, the muscle we're focusing on? Is it shoulders? Is it abdominals? Is it inner thighs? Is it outer thighs? Is it enough tension to be a challenge for the, for the glutes? Do they need more tension? Like that is something that is comes down to an understanding that you have to be able to apply to an individual mm. that takes time to build that knowledge and that understanding. Like that's the goal of my course at the moment to try and teach people that. Um, that's where I feel like there's a big gap in the market. People don't really talk about that that much. So I feel understanding that will automatically deliver more outcomes to clients every time because I don't think it's right that anyone should have a different experience just because they have a different body. It doesn't matter what your body is or your ability level. I can guarantee you're going to feel the same thing everyone else does because I know what intensity we need to put you through with the spring tension and the body position adjustments so you feel it, you know. I can control the time under tension on the muscle group. I can intentionally give you more rest at the start and scale up so you get less rest. And I can control the intensity by how much we stretch the spring you know, you stretch the spring more with the heavy spring, makes it heavier, so it's harder. Stretch the spring less with a light spring, less support, that makes it harder. So there's so many metrics. So I think that scaling the intensity like a st- staircase is like really small steps, makes people progress quicker rather than these big jumps of intensity that are really hard to get to. So being able to adapt a body position easily and quickly for someone, like in any moment, at any time, that's like the superpower. So you have to be able to see the whole room, the whole class, and give them real-time feedback at any moment. That's the thing. You can't really switch off and be like, all right, they'll be fine. I'm going to go mm. over here. Like you really so, have to see. So how would you – all right, so there's two layers there that you talked about in terms of the adjustments uh, or, you know, things that would um, – prompt you to adjust a spring setting or a body position or whatever. And one is just body mass, body dimensions, right? So if I'm, if I'm in there and I'm six foot and a hundred kilos and we're doing long stretch and we're doing it on, say, say everyone put on, I don't know, one full spring, right? And everybody else in the room is like 60 kilos mm-hmm. and five foot six. Yep. Um, you know, like how do you how do you cue that? Do you just yell out and go, "Oh, Raf, you put in on put on one and a half springs," or you know, how do you how do you what do you say? How do you do that? Do you walk up to me and whisper it in my ear? Do you just go and change my springs for me? What do you do? Um, so I usually give two spring options, so I can cater to two different ability levels straight away, and then I always start off in the easiest position mm-hmm. and scale up the intensity from there, mm-hmm. um, and what easiest position would look like if it was a bodyweight exercise would mean that, let's just say if it was a plank, the easiest version of a plank would be a half plank yeah. because you've got the majority of your body weight being directed through the legs rather than going through the forearms and abdominals so you have less of the target muscle group having to support your weight. And then as you change the body position so you become more horizontal or decline, 
then more of the target muscle group has to work, more loads going through that area. So you can control how much they work and how much load they have to support by where you start them. Mm -hmm. So if you intentionally start them in the easiest position and then every time you give them an option, it makes it harder. People come to understand really quickly that you only really offer progressions because you've chosen the base level by from the ability level in the room. Mm-hmm. And um, so they can kind of then decide, I reckon I can take this next level because I'm kind of cruising right now. Mm-hmm. But if there's no kind of consistent application of intensity when you give the next cue, um, then it's really hard for them to know, should I take it or not? Is it mm-hmm. easier or is it harder? Like, um, but so, so what you're saying harder, is every every sequence that you teach, so you might st- teach a plank sequence, and like every sequence, the plank sequence, the lunge sequence, the ab sequence, whatever it might be, it all starts with the easiest version. And each version that you do, you might do like four or five different kind of layers, you know, or steps in your staircase within that sequence. And each step is a bit harder a bit more work on that target muscle group, a bit less rest um, than the step before, right? But I can kind of get off the bus at whatever level, whatever stop I want to get. I can stop halfway up the staircase if I want, if I feel like that's my level today. Pretty much. And then the starting point will be determined by the ability level of the room. Mm-hmm. So let's just say if you're running a scaled system where you have like level one, level two, level three style classes or beginner, intermediate, advanced the beginning level of each ability level is going to be kind of different. So right. you don't have to start super, super basic with the people that are stronger, but you have to for the beginner class because yep. the intention of that class is to serve their needs. Yeah. So there's no point having someone come to a class and then teach them things they can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So intentionally starting people off in a position which they could do for like three minutes-ish yeah. is a really good place to be. And then every option gets scaled up in intensity um, and that will – be the opposite of what it's like to be on survivor because survivor is like everyone starts to fail until there's one winner and you want it to be the other way you want it to be like everyone can do it for the entire duration and everyone's failing at the end because Mm -hmm. you're scaling the level of intensity up right but everyone's failing at the end on presumably a slightly different level so some of us might be failing on the top level and some of us might be halfway and some of us might be somewhere in between Yeah, yeah that's right all right, so friendly, friendly greeting, minimize transitions and cues. Watch, you know, give one cue, watch, watch them to do it, give another cue, and then scaling things and scaling things based on, you know, basically scale by scaling we mean start with the easiest possible, not the easiest possible, but the easiest variation based on your assessment of the level of the class, level of ability of people in the room. Mm-hmm. Give them the version that you think everyone can do for you know two or three minutes, you know, without yep. too much stress. Yep. And then you get them doing that and they're cruising, oh, this isn't so bad. I thought this was going to be hard. And they're like, okay, now lift one knee. Okay, great. Now lift the other knee. Okay, now lift oh, one turn hand. Turn it up, turn yeah. it up, turn it up. <laughs> and before, yeah. before they know it, they're like, fuck, this is hard. And then you're like, <laughs> okay, another five to go, four, three, two. Okay, and, and then now lift your other um, leg and whatever. So answer so, the earlier yeah. question you had about how do you know. Um, so it's to do with every exercise will have like an optimal range of motion and tempo based on what the challenge is. So if it's like a light spring, mm-hmm. then you won't really be moving quick because time and attention is when you're kind of away from the footbar and the carriage is sliding out. Um, and the effort of going out and in at a slow and tempo makes it harder. So okay. the slower you go, the further you go, the harder it is. 
And then if it's heavy tension, then you can also go through a big range of motion, but you do really want to stretch the springs because the more you stretch them, the heavier they get, the harder it is. And you can go faster because there's resistance in the full range of motion. And one of the things that makes an exercise ineffective, which you'll see in a class if the instructor isn't too switched on, is that if someone moves quickly on a spring, which is kind of a medium spring, and there's a moment where there's no tension, that means that it's ineffective because there's not resistance in the full range. So you want to make sure that the way that people are set up, that let's just say they're doing a heavy split, heavy springs. If you can get the carriage to hit the end, it's not heavy enough. Right. But if the carriage can only get about hip distance out, it's too heavy. So you need it to be like heavy enough that you can push it almost all the way for the majority of the time. That's how you, you can see. Like if someone's slamming it to the end, you just put an extra spring on. Yeah. And I've no, I know that you, because you've done it to me, you just walk past and whack an extra spring on. Yeah. Don't even say a word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, straight up. Um, and the, the reason I can do that is is because I'm doing it, it sounds, it might sound funny, from a place where I actually care. Now, I, uh, I care about the outcome. I care about the result. I care about the result more than you might, um, than the potential discomfort of the conflict we might have in that moment. And I knew there wouldn't be any with you anyway. You'd just be like a soldier and smash it. But like, there's going to be moments in classes where someone might need to change their spring because it's not actually helping them at the moment. What they're on isn't doing anything. So if you change their spring, there's always the chance that person might not be happy about that. But the way I think about it is like, if you have children, and I don't have children, by the way, but I'm just like an analogy that I would imagine. You wouldn't just let them eat chocolate all day because they wanted to. You'd actually be like enforce some stuff. You'd be like, no, nah, you're going to eat vegetables because I care about your health. So it's like if you're in my class, I care about your results. So I'm going to change this because that's what you need. And if as long as you can explain why you're doing it, everyone seems to be really on board with that. And they don't really yeah. like it in the moment. But at the end of the class, they're like, oh, my God, yes. I didn't know I could do yeah. that. You know, so yeah. – you just you make the changes that they need because you care about the results. That's that's what I like to do. Yeah, and I I, I agree, and I think uh, I would I often phrase it as uh, a great coach gets you to do the things you don't want to do in the moment, so that you can become what you want to become. Mm. Yeah. Um. All right. So there's those three things: the greeting, the queuing, and the scaling. Yep, and the. And- the adapting of the the tension to the mass of the body. Um, so it's kind of basically I think what it really is, it's making every part of the experience more personal. Mm-hmm. It's like the opposite of doing a workout at home with a screen, with a pre-recorded. Mm-hmm. It's the complete opposite direction to that. Everything's customized to you um, and that's what makes it better. I love this. I love uh I love this philosophy of making it really simple and essentially everyone's doing the same workout. Like we're all doing planks together, all doing lunges together, all doing whatever together, but maybe I'm doing a harder version or an easier version than the person next to me because they've got more strength in that particular movement on that particular day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, so we all are get, and maybe I'm doing it on a different spring setting because you came and took a spring off or put a spring on or whatever, or, you know, swapped out and gave me a different size dumbbell, you know, because that one looked like it was too easy or too hard for me or whatever. And so so it is highly customized, 
And I also know that like a lot of the cues that you give are like encouragement cues to kind of get people to, okay, Raph, I reckon you can go an extra three inches, you know, can you see if you can push the carriage out to the, you know, this far here, you know? Um, and so, and I noticed that really works, you know, the effort level lifts, you know, when you, when you receive a uh, specific sort of encouragement, not like, hey, you're doing awesome high five. I mean, you, you give those out a lot as well. But really, it's like, okay, now I reckon you can push out, you know, six inches more than that, mate. Come on, keep going. <laughs> and, yeah, set the target like, for you. Yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't, I don't want to let you down. So, you know, <laughs> what, will Nathan, what will Nathan think of me if I don't push I out? I still got the video of when you came. Maybe you should put that in the notes or something because the amount okay. of sweat you had was phenomenal. I love that. Sure. <laughs> um, all right. So, I mean, it really is simple, but yeah. it's not easy. And so, so what you're teaching is, you know, fairly minimalist in terms of the cues that you give, fairly minimalist in terms of the number of exercises and the simplicity of the exercises that you're selecting. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just using basic stuff, planks, lunges, you know, presses, rows, things like that. Yeah, yeah. And really just like repeating, I mean, I can't remember exactly, but probably maybe like five or six kind of sequences in a class. Is, would that sound about right? Yep, um, you probably go between. Yeah, you wouldn't like the total amount of exercises would be a hundred percent under fifteen. Let's yeah. just say that. So you'd never go past that. Um, the classes <laughs> may vary, but essentially less is more, and you you keep people in positions for longer by teaching things that are easier, and you scale yeah. them up. Um, and so you have those peaks and troughs because every time you start a new sequence, it's a trough, right? It becomes easier and then it scales up and becomes a peak. And then just when you think you can't bear it anymore, you do another 10 and then you get a relative yeah. rest while you're doing starting out the next sequence. Yeah. And then the cool thing is how you teach to the ability levels will change because you have to find new ways to stress the people that are stronger. Yeah. Because everything they've done to that point has enabled them to adapt to where they're at. So yeah. if we do the same things, they're not really going to get much better. So, so you what do you do? You just keep buying bigger and bigger dumbbells or what do you do? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't stop. Um, everyone, by the way, throw out your 1.5 kilo dumbbells. Just throw them straight out, eh? Waste of time. Um, anyway. Um, I think my watch weighs almost 1.5 kilos. Yeah, well, your arm definitely weighs more than that. So what's the point? Um, like the idea then would be to, to find different ways to stress the body and you, there's so many things you can control, like the rest time between exercises, the sequence mm-hmm. in which muscles work, so you mm-hmm. could do multiple exercises on the same muscle group, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so that would change how you stress the muscle. Like, for example, you might be able to do a light lunge really well or a heavy one. But what if you did a heavy one, fatigued all the biggest or the most amount of muscle fibers in your legs, and then you did a light lunge and made you stabilize on that leg mm-hmm. after it was already tired? Like that would just be different. You wouldn't be prepared mm-hmm. for that even if you'd done both of them before. So it's kind of like finding different ways that you could stress them that would benefit them. And that's the fun part. And and I think the skill level would be higher because you're always adapting to the moment. So if you've got a room full of really strong people, I know what really stresses out a lot of trainers out there is they get concerned that the people in the room are too strong for them they don't know how to stress them enough to get them to be better than what they are. They're like, oh, I'm dealing with like, superhumans and I don't know how to make it harder. 
the thing is, it's actually really easy to make it harder if you've got a focus. I was running a workshop early today, Raf. So anyone with the video will be able to see this. I might give you a little intro of what I mean. So uh, here yeah. is like a little scale, if you can see it. On one side, I've got no springs with this line, mm. light, medium. I've got heavy, combination of heavy, light, heavy, medium. And then in numbers, zero for no tension, 0.25 for light, 0.5 for medium, one for heavy, 1.25 for heavy, light, 1.5 for heavy, medium. Now, the magic line is between them. If you're standing on the machine in a standing split, medium spring is just enough to support you coming back but not enough tension for the glutes as you press away. And then as you decrease the amount of support, you increase the challenge for the inner thighs. Yeah. But on the other side, as you increase the resistance, you increase the challenge for the glutes. So you're like understanding that when you're teaching the exercise will give you all you need to know on how to scale it because this way what it means is less support means you have to work harder to bring the carriage back and you don't have to only just change the spring to make it harder you could also just stretch the spring less yeah that also decrease the tension you know so you could all right so you've you know when you're doing a standing side split for most people you know assuming sort of average ish body mass mm-hmm. um you know, roughly one spring is about kind of the equilibrium point where it's like not that hard to push it out. It's also yeah. not that hard to pull it back in. So it's like you could stand there and do like 20,000 reps and it's like wouldn't it's like really neutral. do much. Yeah. yeah. Whereas every everything you do to make the spring lighter from that point makes it harder on the inner thighs. Yep. Whereas everything you do to make it heavier from that equilibrium point makes it harder on the outer thighs, so the, the butt basically. Yeah. And the other thing that you can do, which you just said, is – so to make it lighter, you know, you could take off the one spring, put on a half spring or a quarter spring, or mm-hmm. you could take the foot off the front edge of the carriage and move the foot to the shoulder pad yeah. so that when you push, when you go out into your full split, the carriage is only halfway out. So there's less spring tension. So you're in the same range of motion with your body, but the springs don't stretch as much. Yeah. So there'd be less support. And then it'd work the same in the opposite way with the heavy spring. So let's say you're doing like a heavy lunge and you step your foot on the floor further backwards, that would yeah. mean that when you push your legs straight, the springs would stretch more. More spring tension. Oh, sorry, this one. So the more you stretch the spring, the heavier it will be. So that would also increase the challenge there. So yeah. that kind of understanding applied in the moment, it just gives you all the things that you need. And the, what tends to happen is a lot of the, the, the trainers in the class, they kind of like, oh, they want the clients to like them. You know, fair enough. They want to be popular. They want them to like them. But when you start to think about stuff like this, you really don't give a shit if the clients like you that much because you just know that you're handing out really effective workouts. And the cool yeah. thing is people love to get results. So yes, you're automatically the most popular straight up. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't even care about being liked, but because yeah. you know how to get results, that makes you the most popular. So right. that's the thing I like to focus on with people is don't worry about the subjectiveness of, oh, I hope they like it, focus on the objective, like what can you control? You know, what mm. are the things that make it harder and how do you scale it? Yeah, I love that. Um, and all right, and so that is a great segue into talking and I only want to keep this brief because I want to do a whole episode on your business, but um, to talk about your um, business that you have now. So you were a full-time teacher uh, teaching at a studio or at a bunch of studios over time. Now you 
have your own business, it's online. You also do in-person workshops, right? So, yep. so tell me like, what's, what's the like 50 words or less version of your business? Oh, um, the elevator pitch. Yeah. So the intention is to try and teach the instructors all the skills they need to better guarantee results for clients. Mm-hmm. By so which you can, mean getting stronger. Yeah. So they can adapt the spring tension, the body position to the ability level, and they can be like graded exercise for everyone so everyone can work at their level. Um, and I feel that with that understanding, it improves your confidence so much that it just changes the focus. It doesn't become like a popularity contest anymore. It just becomes actually a really fulfilling exercise because what you're trying to achieve is something that's far more important than just a class now. It's like I'm actually going somewhere with this. You know, like if you have a destination and you're driving there, every decision you make is either getting you closer to that destination or it's not. But if there is no destination, any road you go is fine. So yeah. if the instructor doesn't have a destination, any exercise they teach is fine, any layer is fine, any tension's fine. But if you're trying to make someone stronger, then it actually makes the class easier to teach because yeah. there's certain things that work and some that don't. And actually having some restrictions means that you don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time. You can just focus on basic stuff. And the cool thing is that basic stuff is what the clients actually benefit from. So it yeah. just makes the whole process more fun. Um, you get more re- like fulfillment from it. Um, yeah. So and, I, teach and I think a lot that. of people, I think a lot of people, uh, instructors worry that if they don't teach a lot of, you know, new exercise, a lot of a lot variety that clients will get bored. But actually uh, in my experience, it's the opposite, both as a client and as an instructor, that the, the, the interest and the satisfaction for the clients comes from the results mm. and it feels fucking awesome awesome when you get stronger and that is just a fascinating exciting exhilarating inspiring experience and it's like it doesn't matter that you're doing the same freaking exercise you've been doing you know three days a week for the last six months it's like you're better at it you know look i can do more springs you know i can do more reps i can go further like that's the fun part that's the exciting part for the client they don't give a shit if the exercise is the same exercise in fact if the exercise isn't the same exercise they can't tell that they're getting stronger because it's like okay I used to be able to do eight lunges. Now I can do 12 step-ups. Well, is 12 step-ups more than eight lunges or less than eight lunges or about the same? It's like you don't know if you made progress. But so yeah. if you just keep doing the same thing, you've got a yardstick to measure against. You want to you wanna give them the ability to see their own progress by having clear milestones of intensity that are applied mm-hmm. consistently. So if you have spring tension that's graded to ability level um, and then you have progressions – that are graded to ability level, by default, if they're doing a harder tension or a more challenging tension or a more challenging variation of a simple movement, they know they're stronger because yep. there's no way they would be able to do it if they weren't. So yep. the education process involved with that is so easy because even they will know that they're stronger now and they'll actually be able to tell everyone why because you educated them in the class. They become like the best advertisement you've ever seen in your life because they are physically stronger and they understand why, they're going to tell everyone. You know, they'll be like, this instructor, they can do this for me, you know. Um, and they basically become the next instructor. Like when you teach people to that level, the best instructors come from the studio that they 
they were taught at because they've yeah. become a part of the culture yeah. and everyone knows them. So they end up learning all the exercises that you teach anyway. So you actually are teaching your next instructors right now. So you may as well give them the best possible introduction to what this is and why we're doing it because they're going to be a mirror version of you. And that's one thing if I could tell you that I do see is when you go around to lots of different studios and lots of different states, you can tell who someone learned from by how they talk and how they run a class. You can tell. You can tell by the cues they use, the structure of the exercises, how they teach. They learned from someone. It's like this lineage of thought processes and cueing styles that comes from certain people. And it's just fascinating. And it's like that's what enabled me to, I think, to start to question why on everything all the time. It's like, well, why are we doing it like that? You know, is that the best way? Because instead of having like one mentor, I probably had like 40, you know, and I've always been just interested to see how everyone would do the most basic thing. You know, does everyone cue a lunge the same way? Why? Mm. Why not? Um, mm. What way is the most effective? You can kind of like put them against each other to see what results would be better. But yeah, everyone tends to be the most um, emotionally attached to whoever taught them and whatever theory that came from. Yep. So um, you tend to see schools developing over time by people just having like their their person. So yeah, I'm trying to probably just broaden that a little bit and say, hey, everybody, you know, um, let's just focus on the information and not really too much about who it came from, you know. I love it. So so if I'm an instructor and I want to do a workshop with you, like do you do online stuff or are you only doing in person? Oh, so I do Reformer Academy. Uh, it's an eight-week program, three sessions a week, 45 minutes each. It's uh, one exercise session where you have a Reformer at home and I will go through and run through like specific exercises for legs or back or abdominals per session. Next one's theory-based. We, we discuss things like we've been talking about today, like other stuff like class planning and, and things that make classes work better. And then the last one is actual workout. So a lot of the stuff we do in the week, we get put together into a workout. You get to do it. Mm -hmm. But um, everyone that's in the academy gets live access to the real classes I teach in real life at workshops as well. Um, so you can kind of actually be like a fly on the wall and actually see. So that's what I found that was the biggest challenge to transition from being an instructor in a studio all the time to being online is it's just not as fun to teach to a camera without people in front of you in real life. Yep. So the idea to actually put the, the camera in the room just to watch as I teach um, has made the process way more fun for me. I think it's more beneficial to the, to the instructors because I actually not just see the exercise but how I'm teaching it. Yeah. Um, and then we can talk about why. Um, and it's also crazy because you can see when you fuck up too. You can see when you miss someone yeah. that you didn't yeah. see something. So like as far as feedback goes, it's almost like being an athlete that yeah. has every game recorded and it gets watched. It's like, wow, you know, I did that well. I did, could have done that better. So Yeah, videoing um, your own sessions is really, really great way of improving for sure. Yeah, but basically the program, yeah, it goes um, for eight weeks. And I've also created something called a reformer library. So I've put all these exercises that are effective in group classes onto um, a platform in which you can view them per video. Um, and it's got the spring tensions that you need and kind of an understanding of how they work, how to scale them. So 
it's kind of like a manual, but with videos that you can just look at anytime you want. Um, and I'm going to turn that into a subscription platform soon. But in the meantime, everyone in the academy just gets it for free. And so this is how you make your living now. Yeah. It's um like the other day, someone asked me what I'd, I, at the moment I'm staying at a place near Newcastle. Which and, is uh, just south, uh, north of Sydney. Yeah. About two hours north, a little bit inland at the moment from Newcastle. And someone was asking me what I do. And I was like, well, I guess I work for myself now. It just feels weird like because I've never really done that. So um, it's exciting. And, it, yeah, the weird thing is, is uh, you'd know this better than anyone, Raph. It's like it never really ends, you know. Like you get an email at 3 in the morning. You're like, oh, I should do that. And then, and then you try and schedule some time not to do something, but something comes up. And then it's um, – um, the good thing is that that I am busy, so that's exciting, you know, and I just want to try and be more efficient and optimize my own schedule. But the idea really is to try and change the way people perceive reformer workouts too because I think people get caught up in this idea that they have to be fancy and clever and unique, but I just see it personally as a form of strength and conditioning. It's just another tool. As a trainer, we can use to make someone stronger. So just use it in a simple and effective way that's scalable, you know, um, that you can give people the feeling of achievement by letting them see how much better they are, you know. If you're always changing everything you do, it's impossible to tell where you're at. So, yeah. And there's also another little trick that works is you can make any single exercise, even the most simple, like air quotes, boring exercise, feel different if you choose to finish it in a different way. So let's just say that every single time you're going to finish like a light lunge would be at the bottom of the lunge where you've got all the time under tension on the target muscle group and you're there for like 10 or 15 seconds. Now you don't just have to stay in that position for that whole time, but you could add in, I could think of like 10 different movement variations that would finish it differently. Like it could be like a heel lift or like you could wobble your knee left to right. Or you could go for like a pulse up and down. Or you could, if you have a spring on, flick the carriage with the back foot. Or you could go rotation with the torso. Or um, you could go like a back extension and flexion with the spine. Um, you could do reach a your arms out, pass, reach yeah. your arms out in front. Yeah, yeah, arm circles. It's like if you finish it differently, it feels different for the client. Yeah. So it could have been ninety nine point nine percent the same thing. But because you finish it differently, it feels different. So that's always something else you can do to bring variety is just to have a different finisher, really. So there's a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Great. All right. And uh, can we link to that in the show notes? Can we link to your academy in the show notes? Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. can. Yeah. All right. So this has been awesome, Nathan. Thanks so much. I always enjoy our conversations. And uh, let's book the next one, eh, and talk about your business and uh, what it's like, you know, in this we're kind of in the wild west this exciting explosion of new business opportunities in the pilates world uh post covid where sort of online is much more prevalent and people are you know a lot of people have reformers at home now they didn't you know two years mm. ago so this is a you know uh, it's really interesting to me and i'm looking forward to having that conversation so thanks very much oh also raf um just one last note i think that there's you know, just to in, to get into a potential strategy for people for this next interview um, in the meantime when it comes to using social media is that these days that 
what happens is when you're an instructor, you tend to have your clients follow you. So the cool thing is if you can create content which is actually really like useful and educational and fun and interesting, what tends to happen is other instructors will share that and then what happens is if you're, uh, let's just say if someone is following their favorite instructor, sees that their favorite instructor loves another instructor, then they're automatically thinking, well, this person must be amazing because my instructor is great. So you can build it's a massive community online really quickly if you just share ideas that are really good. Um, so I think that's like an untapped strategy at the moment, which doesn't cost you anything. Just to probably costs a bit of time and energy, but um, I think that's what's like the only thing it's enabled me to grow really, apart from the experience in real life, is being able to share the ideas online. Because mm-hmm. if um, I've gone from about five thousand to like nineteen thousand in about a year now, so it's kind of exponentially increasing. Um, that's crazy, you know. Like if you get to a certain level, you can kind of do anything and reach anyone. So if we can collectively break the reformer workout out of a micro niche everyone if we can just do that that'd be awesome so we can actually help more people we don't have to compete over the same clients there's so many people out there that don't even know what it is so yeah the number of people in the world who don't regularly do reformer is like 99 percent of the world population so yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so i think if we can just make it more simple and relatable that more people can do it and see the benefit in it Everyone wins, so hell yeah. <laughs> Bravo, brother. All right, good talk. I look forward to yeah. the next one. Look forward to it. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe 
hyphen-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.